Do you want your business to grow faster? Are you open to new and out-of-the-box ways to drive revenues and increase value? How do you imagine the most successful entrepreneurs and business leaders double, triple, or expand their businesses tenfold or more? The answer is deals. This is a weekly podcast featuring conversations with business owners, executives, and leaders as we reveal behind-the-scenes details that give you, our listeners, the confidence to pursue your own deal-driven growth. On the show, we discuss a huge variety of deals, everything from large complex mergers and acquisitions to smaller deals that you can do even without significant capital. My name is Corey Kupfer, and I've been supporting deal-driven growth for businesses for 35 years as a successful entrepreneur, professional negotiator, and attorney. My goal is to help you strategize, plan for, find, and complete deals that will help your company grow faster. Welcome to the Deal Quest Podcast. Let's get started. Logan Freeman is co-founder and principal of FTW Investments and serves as Chief Development Officer. Logan has facilitated over $150 million in real estate transactions. He has a unique understanding of the needs and wants of sophisticated investors, enabling him to effectively support individuals and organizations along their investment journey. Logan is particularly adept at sourcing off-market properties, with more than 50% of his completed transactions involving off-market properties. That's a that's a key point in real estate. He's an advocate for a affordable housing and works closely with many organizations in helping homelessness in Kansas City. Understanding how to do well by doing good is his motto and his why for doing business. He's got an impressive academic background and athletic background, all-American athlete, dra- undrafted free agent, Oakland Raiders. So a lot of, a lot of the cool stuff there um, has done 125 transactions or so. So definitely a guy I'm excited to have on the podcast. Logan, welcome to the show. Corey, thanks for having me, man. It's my pleasure to be here and hoping to add some some value through some of my experiences that I've had recently. Excellent. Excellent. So listen, before we get to those experiences and what's happening now in the market, some of the tips you have, I want to take you back to when you were a little kid growing up, age 10, 12 years old. What did you want to be? Because a real estate investor, my guess is probably what it was that maybe it's obvious from your bio who was an athlete. I don't know, but you tell me, what did you want to be at that time? I was definitely an NBA basketball player, man. I, I absolutely loved Kobe Bryant and Michael Jordan. So growing up, really identified as an athlete. And so I poured my heart and soul into trying to be a good a good athlete and and to grow in that capacity. And one thing that really happened early on in my in my life, my mom worked two jobs to help support the family. And so I valued the, where I, I learned the value of a dollar really early on and, and saving, right? And I started working when I was 14 years old and I was a big guy. I'm from mid-Missouri, so Jefferson City, Missouri. And so, well, what do you do to make money? You go out in the hay field and you pick up hay out of a field and you put it on a trailer. And so that's what I started on. And that was my first job really was throwing hay. And what that taught me was the value of of a dollar, how hard it is to earn it, but also that you have to work for it. And so I've just had this kind of gritty work ethic about everything that I've, I've really tried to approach in my life. And that's, that's definitely paid some dividends for me. So it's interesting. It was basketball, not football. And you ended up going the football route. So, but it was basketball when you were young, huh? Yeah, loved basketball, still do. And I think that what happened was I grew pretty fast and my body, I had some trouble with my knees. And so running on a hard basketball floor and jumping, it just didn't really work out too well with my knees. And so I didn't even play high school football until my sophomore year. And so I was, I was all in on the basketball thing and then realized, well, maybe I can do a little better on the football field. And I did and was able to play Division II football at the University of Central Missouri. And 
had a great career and um, got picked up as an undrafted free agent with the Oakland Raiders. And I made some cuts, but I, I didn't ultimately make the team. And a lot of lessons learned throughout that process as well. I love it. Listen, I, I grew up playing basketball as well, although I'm a five foot eight kid uh, from Brooklyn. So I wasn't, I wasn't going anywhere uh, to get an MBA, you know, certainly not even college, whatever. But, but I, I was one of these kids that back in the day, high school, especially was so crowded. They had like three chefs. So I'd go from high school for like 7 a.m. to 11, 1130, and then I'd be done. And I'd just go to the schoolyard and play ball Absolutely. the rest of the day. And then I have league games at night. And then also a league traveling team, uh, they called it where we went to play other other rec centers and Jewish centers and all this stuff in Brooklyn. So yeah, I was obsessed with the game, but never, never had any aspirations. Uh, I, I always figured I'm too short and I don't have, uh, I didn't have the, uh, you know, I wasn't Spud Webb or anything where I, where yeah. I had jumping ability. So, but I love the game. I, interestingly, and I won't get too off course, but I just happened to be listening to an interview. This was from a little while back with Charles Barkley on YouTube. And he was talking about how the dream team and how Chuck Daly told him he's the second best player in the league. And and Charles, his view was always that he was always the best his, his entire career. And he said to uh, Daly that, uh, that you know, listen, Magic and Bird have all these guys surrounding them. Uh, Barkley was playing, playing at Philadelphia at the time and well, he had no help. And he was he knew he was going to Phoenix the next year. And he said, we're going to make the finals. I'm going to go beat Jordan. And then they made the finals and they lost to Jordan. Uh, <laughs> and, and, that, and, he said, and he said, at that point, I was the first time I said to myself, well, maybe I'm the second best player in the league. It's the plan against Jordan. So, but he, but he, but anybody gave Mar- you know, Magic Bird a lot of credits for saving the NBA and, and, and bringing it to the point where he and then with Jordan could make more money than they uh, would need. So, any case, moving from basketball to real estate, um, or, or I don't know it was real estate because my next question is, what was your first deal of any type? It could be something as, as a kid. It could be one of the early real estate deals. What, what do you remember as your first deal of any type? Yeah, I mean, my first deal was flipping cars and motorcycles. You know, I'd buy, you know, broken down cars or motorcycles off of Craigslist and I would figure out how to fix them up and make them look pretty and then go sell them. And so now that I am a real estate investor, we look at the same the same capacity there as let's go find something broken potentially and, and see if we can fix it up and potentially sell it at some point. And so, man, my first deal was uh, an Acura Integra, you know, and, and so it was a hatch, a hatch, I think it's called a hatchback, maybe. Uh-huh. So two, two seater car and was able to fix that bad boy up, make it look cool, put a little muffler on it. And I was able to sell it for more than I bought it for. And I, I was like, man, that's awesome. So I, I've just taken that whole mentality of, of, of trying to find something that you can, you can put some work into and then you can make it better and, and market it well and, and sell it. And I think that uh, what I learned in, in my master's program in college was really about communication and the way that you communicate is really how selling happens. Selling is just the transference of feeling from one individual to the next. And the way that you do that is through body language, through words and, and how you make other people feel. And so I learned that from an early age, meeting guys and gals that were looking to buy something. I'd have to get them in a certain mental state to say, this is the best car, the best motorcycle, the best house, the best multifamily property because of what we have done. And uh, I like that mentality and, and it's tangible and you can, you, can, you can force that appreciation by doing something physically. And, and I've always liked that approach to things. Love it. So, so, did you, so many real estate investors I know um, started out with fix and flips, single family homes that maybe moved on to multis and did get commercial stuff for it. Nowadays, I've had some people on recently where like, you know, short-term rentals, Airbnb, VRBO kind of properties of the other thing. But many of them got their start and you, you were doing fix and flip motorcycle and automobile deals. Did you, did you, how did you add to real estate? Was it, was it fix and flip deals in the beginning? 
No, so I was fired from my last W-2 job about five or six years ago. And just by happenstance, one of my friends had, had just landed a big client. It was a $50 million fund that was buying single family homes here in Kansas City. And they were looking for a head of acquisitions. And so I came on board not having really much experience in the real estate world, but had a good work ethic and, and could get after it. And uh, my first year with those guys, I did 165 transactions. And when we were done with that fund, I, I really sat down with them and said, okay, then where'd the money come from and how is it structured? And they spent some time with me and said, this was a syndication. And I had never heard that word before. And so I went back and said, oh my gosh, I did my research and and read the books and said, I like the business model, but I don't want to do it on single family homes. I want to do it on commercial shopping centers, office buildings, industrial, and then multifamily. And so I had to go get experience. And so in the brokerage world, I moved my license to a commercial multifamily brokerage and was able to get a lot of experience representing 1031 exchange buyers that don't live in Missouri or Kansas or Nebraska or Iowa, but they're looking for deals. And so I would find 1031 exchange buyers go find them a property, and then I would help facilitate the sale. And that's how I really got into the commercial and multifamily world. And now I've taken that experience and translated into our, our own ownership and, and building a company. I love it. So j just for the folks, I mean, we have some very sophisticated listeners in, in terms of real estate and, and other deals. We have some newer folks who are learning. So just super quickly, I mean, a 1031 exchange, folks, is a, is a tax free or tax deferred exchange where at a very simplistic level, you're able to sell one property and reinvest the money into another uh, property or asset. It doesn't actually have to only be real estate, although it's most used in real estate, and not have to pay any taxes on the game because you're reinvesting it in, a, in an appropriate, like kind, is what they call it, property. So we won't spend a lot of time at 1031s, but I, I just want to make sure we don't throw out terms that some of the listeners are like, what is that? So yeah, and that's that's, that's an interesting market. So all right, so now, so, so you do that, you get the experience, right, et cetera. You learn about what a syndication is, right? Which is basically all that all that is, right? Is raising money from other people and uh, having shared risk on a, on a deal. And uh, so, when you decided to do it on for yourself, did you? So there are a couple of ways that 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 syndicating deals happen. One, it could be specific for a property, right? We're basically just going out to a bunch of investors with a specific deal or package or properties or whatever it is. And then the, the other way to do it is that you create a, a fund that is not specific to. And it's on you as the, you or you and your partners as the general partners or managers or promoters have the opportunity to choose what the investments are in. Which routes did you go or have you done both? Yeah. So well, I, I went the joint venture route first. So yeah. I, it's money and bought some properties myself, quickly ran out of, of experience, knowledge and capital. And so went back to my mentor and he's like, dude, you've got to find business partners that supplement your skill set. And so what was that? Okay. So I had to take stock of what I could bring to the table and that's deal finding, that's relationships, that's raising capital, all of those pieces. But I didn't have finance, accounting, management or project management kind of background. And so I, I, I really decided, okay, I'm going to go find those business partners. And that took another year and a half or two years, but I finally found a couple of guys that had that experience. And we partnered up back in 2019 and started to buy our first multifamily properties. And it was always project specific. So we would go raise money for a 37 unit apartment complex or 150 unit apartment complex or 35,000 square foot shopping center, whatever it was. And we've taken that same approach. I think we've done 17 or 18 uh, different projects now in, in four states, but we, we've loved the fund model. I think that's, that's phenomenal if you can get there. What happens is you, you, I have this idea of a fund 
And then you don't have any track record, you don't have any experience or you don't have enough experience to actually attract fund type investors. And so what I've found in, in talking with larger uh, institutions, when they're allocating to a fund, they want to see 10 years of experience and you know, a certain amount of assets under management, a certain amount of deals full cycle. And so that's, that, that's a, a model that we'd like to move to, but that's going to take some time. And I think that's a good model for, for certain groups. You also get into being a fund administrator and you have different legalities that you have to, to think about in regards to the way that you raise capital and, and, and you report on that, that fund. So we've done single asset or portfolio syndications up to this point. We've done about 1,400 multifamily properties. We have two office buildings, two hotels, four shopping centers, and big industrial property as well now. So We've, we've just always done it just project specific and, and raised capital for those deals that way. And, what, and what's the model? Is it, are you basically buying and holding for a period of time? Are you, are you looking, is the criteria which you're going to flip or exit those, those investments? What's, what's, what's the model? Yeah, it's always looking for a long-term hold. So trying to find a good property at a great basis that we think is going to appreciate over time. And your cash flow is phenomenal in the Midwest if you do it right. And yep. so that's great for the investors as well. But we're not really in the business of buying something, fixing it up and trying to sell it 12 months later down the road. Most of our investors say, hey, I'm allocating 500 to a million dollars with you. And I don't want to have to go find another project in 12 months. And so especially in today's competitive marketplace in regards to, to where all the capital markets are and where property owners want their prices to be. So typically five to 10 years is what we're looking at in regards to a whole period for these projects. Great. So we are recording this in October of 22. It's probably going to be aired in November and December. Just to give anybody, because we have listeners who end up listening a year later or whatever it is, I want to give people a time element here. So at this point, you know, you talked a little bit about, about the market and how competitive deals are, prices have gone up and getting capital, which has been abundant. But we have some headwinds, right? Potentially. Obviously, the Fed's pushing up interest rates significantly which affects borrowing costs. We have seen, certainly I've, I've started to hear in the residential market, prices are starting to, I don't want to say go down significantly, but at least the rates of growth have, have, have slowed and, and a lot of people are anticipating maybe a drop in the market with some other economic factors, fear of recession, all this kind of stuff. And I always, whenever I say that, I always uh, say I'm hesitant to even use that word because I hate these self-fulfilling prophecies when everybody starts talking about something and the news starts talking about it. And it's like, because there are, a number of positive things going on, right? You know, stock market's been tough, but the last, last couple of days, it's, it's been strong. You never know what's going to happen, right? Their unemployment's really low. Any case, I don't want to get into a whole economic analysis, but there are some headwinds. There are some initial challenges. What are you seeing in terms of how that is affecting the market? And although we don't have any crystal ball, what are you anticipating as a business owner, as an investor? We always want to do the best we can to try to anticipate the future and then make decisions accordingly, hedge huh. and that kind of stuff. So what are you seeing and what are you doing to address what might be certain factors that will change aspects of the market? Great question, Corey. You know, what I would say here is let's just set the stage of the last two years, right? You go back to 2019, we've got interest rates between five and six, cap rates between six and seven, deals are being done, everybody's happy. Then 2020, COVID happens and, and the world gets completely shut down. So from April of 2020 till October, of 2020 is really when we saw a big drop in asset prices across all commercial uh, pricing. And if yep. you want to track this, the Green Street Property Price Index is a phenomenal place that you can go and track this on a regular basis. And so we saw a big drop in, in pricing. We as a company saw an opportunity to purchase during that period of time. Right. Because if you could get equity and you could get debt, 
they were at the historically lowest levels that they have been ever at a really long, long time. And so those deals made a lot of sense if you had the foresight to, to go in and, and buy at that time and you could get past the fear in the market. Then in October, federal stimulus starts to come on, come inbound and, and all these different things happen. And so the uncertainty in the marketplace and, and people start to get their heads wrapped around COVID just a little bit more. And we've got, we've got the shots or the vaccines or whatever. So people start buying because debt's super cheap. And so now, now you have sellers selling properties at astronomical prices because debt is so cheap. Equity is, is abundant because people have more capital. They feel wealthier because their right. homes are going way up. And then you, you see all this competition come into the marketplace on the multifamily side that really creates a, an interesting situation for buyers and for sellers because sellers' expectations are now rooted that, hey, I can get this price. And brokers are telling me I'm going to get this price. And it was a great time to be a broker during that period of time. And then so now you have all this competition, but now we have high inflation because of all the stimulus. Now we have competition in the marketplace. We have high, higher interest rates. And so sellers are still anchored to those previous pricing. So sellers want yesterday's pricing and buyers want tomorrow's pricing. And so that's what's yes. called the bid-ask gap. And that bid-ask gap is very large right now. And that typically happens at the end of, a, of an economic cycle, right? So now we're at the end of this contraction period and recession period where we're going into that recession period potentially is, is what we've been, been told. If we're not already in one already, whatever, whatever your thoughts or views are on that. But you're, you're now into a point where transaction volume are dropping off the, off the cliff. But there's fragmented opportunity. And what I mean by that is, there was, there was deals done the last two to three years with floating rate, interest rate debt. And I know people talk about this a lot, but this is a huge component because now the, those owners are being forced to either refinance or buy a rate cap. And that rate cap is extremely you know, expensive. The rate cap's at seven or 8%. The deals just don't pencil because they were already overpaid and highly leveraged. And so there will be fragmented opportunities in those projects to, to come in if you have sources of equity and debt and you're a good operator and you can grab those at a discount. Now that's gonna cost some, some pain for 12 to 15 months. But if you're a strong operator, you know what to look for and you can have, you have sources of equity and debt that you can go to, you can stomach the risk, so to speak, or the fear. That's where Sam Zell, Warren Buffett, Charlie Munger always say time is now. And that's a hard thing to do as a real estate investor when you have all of these headwinds. Now, you get back to Sam Zell's thesis of supply and demand. Everybody knows that we are underbuilt on the multifamily side, but it's also happening on the industrial side and in the retail side. And so there's a lot of supply that is uh, not there and it's not abundant, but it's also difficult for developers to go develop that right now because of where interest rates are. And so that, those are the tailwinds that you have as an investor here if your experience is sophisticated and you have access to deal flow. And so I'm excited about that opportunity. I'm also nervous to, you know, young guy, young firm to go through the first maybe recessionary period, true recessionary period. And so we have to be able to make sure that our operational capacity is very strong. So what does that mean? Well, it means people. It means collective genius. It means systems, processes, technology, relationships. They have to be extremely strong right now. And investors need to be thinking about that. And in here, when you're pricing a new project, this is the last thing I will say is right now you have to be very careful on acquisitions because in, in six months, there might be a 10% discount to what you're doing right now. So to get a uniquely good deal, you might need to be 15 or 20% below prices of where it is right now. So just something to be thinking about as investors are looking to enter into a marketplace where a lot of wealth will be created, but it will be with the folks that can stomach what's going on and see the opportunity at hand and have operations in place.
uh, there's listeners, there's so much in what Logan just said. I want to tease out a few things in there, right? One, he talked about the gap between the, at, at this stage of the market and the way he says exactly right. I mean, it, it happens every time where um, sellers get anchored to a certain price. Yesterday's price is the way Logan put it. I love that. And buyers, of course, want to buy at tomorrow's price. And, the, and there is always a period of time, whether that's six months, whether that's a year, whether that's 18 months, whatever it is, uh, depending upon the market and the and the and the type of and the, and the economy and all this kind of stuff, where it takes sellers to get realistic to understand that we're not in yesterday's market, right? So that so that's 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 a pattern to to look at and to follow. And and, and does that mean that that may mean that you keep some money on the sidelines and wait for it? But I love the other point that Logan made, which is the fact that there's always there's always deals available, and that's because and I've talked about this before on the podcast. One of the things I like about real estate is that it's in, you know, and different levels are at different levels of this, but it is a comparatively inefficient market. Compare it, for example, to the stock market, right? Where you've got program trading systems and unbelievably sophisticated people that are analyzing every anomaly in the, in the, in the marketplace, right? And, and listen, like I said, I've said this best as well, maybe, you know, high-end commercial buildings in Manhattan or San Francisco or whatever are a pretty efficient market. But when you get outside of that, when you're talking about shopping center opportunities, multifamilies and various other cities and things like that, it's, there's inefficiencies in the market, which means that there's always a reason, if you really know a market, that there may be a deal available, right? The variable interest rates is an example that, that Logan gave as, as one of the many reasons that you could have health issues on an individual owner. You don't have as much in terms of professional management, professional ownership, and certainly these asset classes that always make for the inefficiency opportunities available with the market. So that's something else that, 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 that Logan pointed out. And just this concept of the fact that some of the biggest money is made in down markets if you can get by the fear and if you're well positioned, right? If you have the capital or access to the capital, if, you, if you're ready to take advantage of those opportunities. Let's take a break from the show for a minute so I can invite you to a new way to determine your deal readiness. I created a fast and easy assessment that will determine exactly how deal ready you are. Once you complete the assessment, I use your responses to identify the obstacles that are holding you back from being a deal-driven growth genius. It's as easy as heading to coreycupfer.com slash assessment. That's coreycupfer.com slash assessment and filling out a few multiple choice questions. I'll be checking in after the episode to see what your results are. Now back to the show. So I love, there's a lot in that, that that's that's really important. And that, that sort of gets to an area that I, often try to ask about because I, I think it's so valuable to the listener and so fascinating to see people hear people's response to it. And that is part of what you're touching on as well is this mindset of a deal mate, right? I often talk about that because most people will run in fear when things are bad and, and many people will look to jump on the bandwagon, whether it's in real estate or the stock market or in crypto or NFTs or whatever it is. You name the asset class, right? They're going to put money in at the high and, 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 and pull it out at the low. And, and there's studies, for example, in the stock market that the, the best thing to do is to just invest a dollar cost average, keep your money in. You can never time the market. People who time the market end up with lower returns, right? So what is that psychology that has you as somebody who's becoming a professional investor in this market, be able to make those logical decisions to understand that because I think intellectually a lot of people understand it, but just emotionally they can't handle it, right? So what, what is that difference that deal maker mindset difference that is somebody like you or the amazing names of people that Warren Buffett's and the Jolly Mungers uh, that you mentioned be able to do that successfully when a lot of people just can't, you know, they, they, they just let the, the fear override them. 
Well, I think that the most professional and successful investors are able to have a good relationship with risk. And so what I mean by that is it's our job to understand the risks for each one of the projects that we're pursuing and do the best of our ability to quantify it, plan for it, and eliminate it in any way possible. And that's what our investors expect and frankly, what they deserve. But I also think that risk is one of the most misunderstood aspects of a deal. So it can just be defined as anything that's unknown or not part of the plan, right? But saying something is high risk oftentimes is incorrect. So for example, a risk that has a high likelihood of occurrence, but a small impact, that could be completely acceptable. But on the other hand, a risk with a medium likelihood of occurrence in, in a high impact, that might be completely unacceptable. And so when you start with a mental model around risk, and you try to evaluate that the best of your ability, then you can start to see things a little bit more clearly. It's not just all about upside and upside and upside, because if you're in the game for long enough, there's always going to be downside. And if you're not thinking about it, that's when you can get in real big trouble. And so we try to start with that mental model of risk, and it starts with different types of risk. So you have feasibility, you have time delays, you have one-time financial costs, you have recurring financial costs, you have quality risks. And so how do you go through all of that? Well, I mean, you have to have KPIs and you have to have ways to, to actually quantify these different types of the components of a deal. And that just, takes, that just takes reps, man. I mean, the first three years in real estate for me, I was not buying real estate for myself. I got to go through 150 or 200 transactions with other people as a facilitator. Can you imagine what I got to learn through from an experience standpoint, just seeing appraisal risk and construction risk and time delay risks and feasibility, thinking that one thing's going to happen in an area and it doesn't, and then your, your property doesn't go very well. You can't do that unless you have been through it. And so I think what uh, passive investors need to be thinking about is when they're talking to sponsors and, and people, folks that they're going to invest in, tell me how you think about risk and what risks are in this opportunity and how are you quantifying that and, and putting a plan in place to actually justify, to get the return for the risk that you're getting. And so every, I think, group needs to be thinking about that. Everybody quantifies it a little bit differently, but if you're not thinking about risk, it's hard to really see what the potential upside would be because you're not really thinking about risk-adjusted returns. And that's just from Sam Zell and from Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett. They all have mental models around risk that are basically taken from their anecdotal evidence of their deals that they've done previously. And it's hard to quantify that and put it into an equation, but that's, that's what you're able to do, like you said, in an efficient market, like the stock market with volatility and these different measures like that, that's really difficult to do on a real estate deal because it has people involved. And that's a big component that is one that is, is a, a massive part of the risk component that we, we, we think about a lot. So I would say we start with risk, man, and really try to understand that. And from that, we can then say, okay, well, it just seems like there's a lot of risk in this deal. Let's not price this at this point. Let's, let's put a premium on that. Got it. Love it. Love it. So we talked about some of the potential current or soon in the future headwinds or potential impacts, whether it's rising interest rates or inflation or things like that. But coming out of the pandemic, especially, a lot of people have talked about some potential long-term fundamental shifts, right? You know, you invest in shopping centers, right? I mean, certainly in terms of any retail space and office space, right? There's a lot of different views out there. Uh, obviously, we've seen some people come back to the office. Some people never come back to the office. Some people, are, they're moving to hybrid. I mean, I personally know a lot of the, some of my clients and just, uh, you know, I spent a lot of time in the entrepreneurial community and most of, more of them are looking to divest space and downsize office space than, than are looking to expand office space these days. There's been pressures on retail 
even before the pandemic, just with the Amazons and the online, whatever. And now there's additional in this K economy that came out of uh, the pandemic where there were certain sectors like, fortunately, some that I spent a lot of time in like financial services and tech that did really, really well during the pandemic. And then others like, like, like retail, restaurant, et cetera, that really got hurt. People are looking at the fundamental, the potential fundamental shifts and the impact on investing in real estate. Love to hear your thoughts on, on those. Yeah, the riches are in the niches and that's extremely important to remember. So subsets of subsets and deals are made on the margins. And so when you think about just office in general, there's so many different product types that are out there, right? You have high rises, you have suburban, you have class A, class B, you have highly minitized product. It's, it's very different. And what I would say about office is, you know, office is probably six to eight years behind the retail transformation. And what I mean by the retail transformation, well, in retail, you have malls, you have power centers that have big boxes in them. You have strip centers, you have neighborhood centers, you have community centers. And each one of those presents different risks and opportunities. And so, for example, I'll take neighborhood retail shopping centers, for example, because this is where you're going is service-based. So e-commerce resistant service-based tenants, it's chiropractors, it's mm -hmm. some certain restaurants, it's banks, it's discount stores, it's grocery stores, right? So you have these different subsets that can really present good opportunities. But when you hear retail, people are like, oh, retail is, is dead, the retail apocalypse. Brick and mortar retail for the first time in a long time outsold e-commerce last year in, in regards to sales. And that's huge. And web penetration, meaning all the retail sales done online, is still only about 19% of total retail sales. So 81% is still happening in brick and mortar. And brick and mortar grew faster last year than it did on e-commerce. So and overall retail sales is another component to be thinking about because that just comes down to the strength of the consumer. Well, if you have everyday necessity type of services that folks are going to and you're well-located, you're probably going to do okay. But if it's a big Best Buy and PetSmart and things that people can buy online, you probably got some more risk, right? Or some TJ Maxx or something like that. They're going to have to re-transform into whatever the, the consumer is asking. And so that's why we've seen Kohl's say, hey, you can bring your Amazon packages back here. You know, you, you've seen these different types of, of scenarios where they're transforming. Office is going to be a really unique one because the hybrid workspace is, is here to stay. And, yep. uh, you know, to attract talent in a tight labor market, you have to be willing to be flexible. And so I, I don't know exactly how that's going to shake out. I think that a class A suburban office that's well-parked and close to home will probably do pretty well. Because on the flip side of that, yes, you have folks downsizing space, but I've heard a lot of CEOs say our people want to get out of their homes and they want to come be in a collaborative networking kind of environment. So what's that going to look like? Well, maybe they look more like WeWorks or something when you show up with the coffee shop and in different places and, and, and more community oriented. Or people are like, hey, I don't want to get COVID again or whatever the next flu is or whatever, whatever happens. And so I want my own office. And so maybe you'll see office you have people have their own offices with, with, with doors that they can shut. Who knows what it's going to transform into? But there will always be opportunities in some of these tailwinds or headwinds that you have to think about really come from talking with people, talking with business owners, talking with brokers and seeing what's going on in the marketplaces. And uh, that presents opportunities. And so the riches are in the niches. You have to really get into the nitty gritty and the details because the headlines are, is not where you're going to see your, your investing opportunities. These things are always fascinating to me. And the one of the unique things about real estate investors is like, listen, I grew up in New York City, right? In Brooklyn originally, lived in Manhattan, was born in the 60s. So I've seen a lot of change, right, in New York City. And in the 70s, when New York was horrendous crime, the city was in receivership, a lot of companies fled. 
but real estate can't flee, right? right? If you own buildings, you can't move them to China or even to New Jersey, right? Now, the companies that rent your buildings can, can make those decisions. But what that causes, which is always interesting to me, is I'm fascinated on how the real estate community always figures a way on how to repurpose the space, right? I mean, I look at downtown Manhattan, for example, when I was, when I was young, even when I first started, I had an office down on Wall Street starting in uh, 1992. That was, that was a recession time. There was a lot of vacancies and that's when they started converting a lot of the commercial space to residential. And what it did was it created, I mean, Wall Street area used to be something that in the evening was, a, was dead. I mean, nobody was there, but then they started converting some of the buildings to real estate. I mean, to a residential. Then of course, what happened? Services started coming in to support those people who live there. More restaurants opened, the state opened at night, not just sort of the business state houses or whatever. And the area transformed, right? And it's 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 in part because it just like no choice, right? The owners again, the owners of those buildings can't move them. They got to figure out what to do with them. And you get a lot of smart people, and they usually figure out how to repurpose it. And I hear you sort of theorizing that things can go different ways. The thing I'm confident is that the real estate community will figure out what to do with the space. There may be some pain along the way, right? And obviously some operators who are less capitalized or less efficient or less creative who may suffer. But overall, even cities that have gone way, way down. I was I was in Detroit recently, right? I got a whole history of Detroit real estate or whatever would happen there and how a couple of, mainly one guy, two or three guys came in and bought up you know, that have transformed that city. You see it in downtown Pittsburgh. You see it in a lot of places. Now, it may take decades in some places, but at some point, it, you know, it, it comes back around. Old Matra reigns supreme. Location, location, location. Yeah. And yeah. if, you, if you, you will figure it out if you have a good location and you can be open to different functionalities. And so I totally yeah. agree, Corey. That's a great point to be made. I don't think it can be glossed over, but location is so, so critical in real estate. Listen, we have listeners, viewers all over the country, even all over the world. So we tend to focus on the bigger stuff, but, but, but you do focus in a particular geography. Tell us a little bit about just, I mean, you mentioned it earlier, but on the geography you, you focus on and, and what potentially makes that unique or interesting or different than maybe some other places and, and what you focus on there, because the other, one of the other mantras in real estate is that, you know, it's all local, right? So. Right. You know, we're in the Midwest, so Missouri, Kansas, Nebraska, Iowa, Oklahoma, and Arkansas. And we love the Midwest because we understand the Midwest, and that's our competitive advantage. But there's a lot of things to be, be highlighting in the Midwest. You got transportation, you got agriculture, you got manufacturing, and a lot of places, and, and business-friendly in a lot of these states. And so I think that's and, and that's that's really important for services and, and real estate in general. But you also think about affordability. And so now if you are, we are talking about more of this gig economy and you can work somewhere, but live wherever you may be trying to make your money in one state and live in a different and be able to have a lower cost of, of living. And so uh, the Midwest really reigns true in regards to the affordability indexes and that that's, that's attracting a lot of people because the measure of living is low here from a cost standpoint, but people are happy here and it's nice and it's in there. A lot of places are safe. I mean, I just saw Olathe, Kansas, land number three on, on Fortune's 25 places to live in the country. I mean, Olathe, Kansas, right? I mean, who would have thought? Well, it's school districts, it's houses, it's businesses, it's jobs. It's all these different things that are attracting a certain demographic of people that are interested in living here. And then during recessions, the Midwest has usually fared a little bit better because most of these services, manufacturing and logistics and all these things that power the country are, are housed in the Midwest. 
I mean, you can get to 80% of the United States from Kansas City in two days or less from a logistical standpoint. And that's huge when it comes to supply chain control and being able to, to think about your business in general. So we are, are, are headquartered in Kansas City, Missouri. That's where we own most of our properties. But places like Omaha, Nebraska, Lincoln, Des Moines, Iowa, Oklahoma City, those are all Des Moines, Iowa. Those are all places that we really, really like because of the same demand drivers. And we can understand the psychographics of the people that are living there, working there, and renting our real estate. And so that's where we're at. That's what we love because we have a competitive advantage here. And we feel like we, we can really understand the different demand drivers for, for the real estate world. Love it. Love it. So before I ask you my final two questions, is there anything else that's just that I haven't asked you that's on your mind that is whether it's a trend or whether it's something, piece of advice in real estate or something that would be useful to the audience? Be patient and work with people that you trust. Because right now is a time where we're going to have to wait things out and we're going to have to hunker down. And you want to do that with people that you like being in the room with. So if you're going to get in business with somebody, make sure, make sure you're patient, have the right expectations and take courage because it, we all need to be courageous as United States citizens. We need to be banding together and not farther apart. We need to come together and keep this country as great as it has been for however many years it's been around. And so that, that's what I would say right now is, is we got to be working together. We got to be collaborative. We got to get on the same page and we got to be courageous as we go through uh, a tough period of time here in the, in the near future. Love it. Love it. So if people want to find out more about you and your company and investments or anything else you want to share, what's the best place for them to go? Yeah, you can find me on LinkedIn. I post daily over on LinkedIn, Logan Freeman, Mr. Kansas City. You'll find me there, highly active on LinkedIn. Our website is ftwinvestmentsllc.com if you're interested in the Midwest and learning about real estate here. I love connecting and talking with people and, and just meeting awesome people, Corey, just like yourself. Excellent. So my final question on the podcast is always about my highest ideal in life, which is freedom. And for me, that means everything from freedom from oppression from all people in the world to the reason I haven't had a boss in decades I, and I get to call the shots. So what does freedom mean to you and how does it impact your life and business? Yeah, freedom for me is being able to spend the time where I want to spend it. And freedom means growth and achievement. And that is extremely important for me. I love to read. I love to become better. I'm very competitive. But now being married with children, freedom really means to be the man that I, I know God set out for, for me to be and to be that best version so I can try to create a legacy of uh, Freemans, uh, you know, that's my last name, Freemans, to create them, to, to, to give them an opportunity to, to really live that out. And, and I think what happens a lot of times in life is you, you get yourself worked into a position where you're stuck. And I don't think we were meant to be stuck. I mean, I think we were meant to work in our sweet spots to really elevate ourselves. And the only way that you can do that is to enjoy what you're doing, truly enjoy what you're doing. So my mission in life is to try to get people excited about living their, their missions and, and try to really help them along their way and say, there, there is an option. There is an option. And it's, it's based on your decisions that you want to make and you can make yourself a better person. And if we all do that, we're going to come together and be a great country and continue to be the greatest country in the world. Love that. Logan Freeman, thank you for being such a great guest on the Deal Quest podcast. Corey, thanks for having me. It's my pleasure spending some time with you guys today. Thank you for joining me on this episode of Deal Quest, where we help you understand how deal driven growth can be your ticket to freedom. I want to invite you to a unique way to tap into the wisdom and experience of the Deal Quest community. Join the Deal Quest Deal Den Zoom calls, a free monthly 90 minute mastermind. In the mastermind, we address all the challenges you may be facing 
and help support you with the opportunities that may arise in terms of deal-driven growth. You will get input not only from me, but all the members on the call will collaborate and serve each other in a mastermind format. To sign up for the free mastermind, go to www.coreycupfer.com slash dealden. That's coreycupfer.com slash dealden. I'll see you there. I'm Corey Kupfer. Until next week, wishing you the freedom and financial prosperity that I know your deal quest will bring.